Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Tatecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I had Dale White, head coach of the Erie Commodores on the podcast. For those of you who've been listening to the show since its inception, you might remember episode 14 where I had Max and Arthur, two semi-professional European soccer players who play over in the minor league systems in the United States on the podcast. We talked a lot about what it's like to transition from Europe to the United States, what the American soccer game is like uh, from a player's perspective, and I had their coach, Dale, on the show to talk about what it's like from uh, a coach's perspective and the state of the uh, the beautiful game in the United States of America and much more. I think even if soccer is maybe not your favorite sport, I still think that this is going to be a pretty enlightening and interesting episode for most of you. Of course, if you want to support the show, you can always leave a rating and review on iTunes. You can also support the show by subscribing on Patreon for $5 a month to get bonus episodes of the show and, uh, you know, just kind of helps support us out here. And of course, we are also sponsored by dailyroto.com, the best projections and lineup tools in the industry. You can get 10% off of their elite package using the promo code Rory. You can also get access to the Roto Experts NFL 365 package, which is headed up by yours truly using the promo code Matic on rotoexperts.com. Now let's get into the show. All right, everyone would like to welcome to the show head coach of the Erie Commodores, Dale White. We actually had two of Dale's players on the show earlier on this podcast. I believe it was episode 13, uh, but uh, I got I got an email from the Erie Commodores organization, and Dale, really glad and really excited to talk to you about uh, about some soccer, about some footy today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Dave. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, really, uh, really appreciate the time. I, I, I don't get to talk about soccer too often on this show, but it, it is the sport that I personally am most passionate about. So I'm, I'm really interested. Uh, what is your story of discovering I, not only not only soccer, not only football, but uh, when you realized that you really loved it and that you wanted to pursue it as you know your your profession? Yeah, well, obviously, growing up where I did, um, it's it's an obsession over there. So, you know, every kid's um, kind of dream, or, or most kids' dream, is to play professionally. Um, you know, and, and and as a child growing up, we we used to play before school, uh, during all three breaks at school and after school. I mean, it was it was really uh, a lot, you know. But my first memory, I was thinking about this. My first memory was of my my dad in my mind he'd kick the ball up into the clouds one day when him and i were playing playing soccer so i must have been really young then um you know so i mean probably been playing since i, I could walk if i'm honest what uh what team did you root for growing up well i guess what what part of the united kingdom are you from 
Well, I'm originally from Scotland, but I grew up most of my life in the north of England. Um, so my my family uh, mainly are from Glasgow, and obviously in Glasgow there are two teams uh, built around the uh, uh, the Catholic and the Protestant church. Um, and Celtic is the team that that the the Irish immigrants started uh, through the Catholic Church, and, and Rangers is the team that um, the Protestant Church started. And you know, it's it's in history, it's been a bit a bit of rivalry. Most of the the problems are now uh, somewhat under control, and it, it makes for a good atmosphere. Um, but my, growing up, I, I followed the the Celtic. But ironically, my dad is a is a Rangers fan, and that doesn't happen too much. <laughs> no, no, that would be that would be like uh, for for people in the states, that would be like your dad being a Mets fan. Well, I guess for yeah, it'd be your dad being a Mets fan and you being a Yankees fan. And and Rangers have had uh, a really hard time. They they like went into default and had to restart over because the ownership went broke, right? That's right. Yeah, there was some uh, some not so good business dealings, and then. Uh, They've they've restarted and and you know the football in that country is better off for the rivalry so it's good that they're back up there. But I'm glad that Celtic's on top. That's them just won their eighth league in a row. So yeah, uh, it's Celtic. Uh, they they definitely they're they're the Golden State Warriors of the Scottish Premiership. That I I don't even when is the last time that Celtic didn't win the Scottish league? Well, it's eight years in a row now they've won it. Um, so whatever that is. <laughs> 2009, 2010 would be the last time, I think. Yeah. So did you play like semi-professionally? Were you in any of the academies? Did you train with any of the teams while you were over there? Because uh, if I remember from talking to uh, Arthur, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name of your other player that I had on, they, they basically started playing in sort of a semi-professional structure really early. Was that your yes. same experience or did you kind of miss out on that because the structure didn't exist yet? Well, it was it certainly was different, but um, we where we lived, uh, our nearest professional team was Carlisle, um, which was about twenty miles for us. Um, so it was, and, and believe it or not, that was actually tough getting back and forward there. Um, so I wasn't really in that setup for long at all. But um, when I when I was young, uh, as a fourteen year old, I. Um, I did captain a, a side, a representative side that had uh, Rory Delap in it, who um, you may remember played for Stoke City in Ireland. He was the guy with the really long throw that would that would play for Stoke City. Um, and then you know there was there were Paul Murray and Richard Procast. These guys all played professionally all of their life, and they they were in that team. But unfortunately, I was I, I had to take a year out almost immediately after that um, when I was 14 and then uh, with back problems and same thing again when I was 17. So it was really two two pivotal times that, that really made things difficult for me. Um, I did play in like the seventh tier in, in England um, a little bit and, and then realized that my best option was to come out to the US and get my, my degree because traditionally where, I'm, where I grew up, people either are educational or their their football, you know. So um, being able to combine the two was was really good. It was it's been incredible out here. So at, at what time period did you come over to the states? Were you were you eighteen or were you a little bit older than that? 
I was a little bit older, so I was um, I was 22, uh, I believe, when I came here, and uh, I'd already done two years of of college at home, and then did two years of college here. Um, so yeah, I was a little bit older than your your regular freshman, um, you know, but it was still an exceptional experience for me. So did, did you play soccer when you came over? Were you playing for the college team that you went on, or were you sort of right into the coaching when you came over here? No, no, I came to play. Yeah, I came and I played for Gannon, where I'm, where I'm coaching uh, at college now, at Gannon University here in Erie. And um, the, the, the local college coach and a good friend of mine, Gary Kagiavis, he approached me while I was playing, about coaching a couple of nights a week for a, a team that he had, and um, that was how the coaching started. Really, just um, took it as a as a part time job and um, in, enjoyed it, but never ever thought about doing it beyond that. Um, probably wasn't until I was twenty five, twenty six, and I um, played. I went back to England and was training in, in the seventh tier again, and. Um, you know, it was. I could see that it was going to take a long time for my face to fit in that team, um, which you're always dealing with when you're at that sort of level. You know, where there's many, many okay players. I mean, some not so good, but uh, but their face fits and they've been there for a long time. You know, so there was there was a lot of dynamics um, in trying to progress as a player, and um, that was when I first thought, well, maybe I should focused more on coaching but then I, I came back to the US again uh, after I graduated uh, college and then um, I was with a team called the, the South Jersey Barons at the time in the PDL and it was a, it was a similar story for me with injuries um, you know I just couldn't get going and I think I'd been offered a, a place coaching at, at Mercyhurst University again here in Erie and I just suddenly thought, you know, well, that's a great way to make a living. I'm, I'm a frustrated player because I can't reach the heights that I want. And, um, you know, what an opportunity to start start coaching as a job. So that was it. And, and then since then, I've, I've just focused on that and focused on, you know, trying to really help players become better players and, and develop. And obviously my tactical understanding of the game and, and everything's grown as I've done that so it's been good what uh what position did you play while you were still while you were still trying to make that dream happen yeah well as a youngster I played in a in a sort of wider position on the right usually and then when I came to the U.S. I, I went more to a central position which I think suits me but when you're the, when you're the young guy on the team at home then you know you, you get pushed into those uh wider positions where you have to be more mobile and do a lot more, um, more not necessarily more running, but in those days it, it certainly was. The wide wingers were were doubling up as fullbacks and then getting into the corners and crossing balls. So, um, But I think once I moved to the U.S. and was put into the center, that, that actually helped me a lot. It helped me... Uh, it, it suited more my, my way of playing, um, and then it also helped me understand the game a much on a much different level than I than I had up to that point. Yeah, well, there's a I mean, there's definitely a big difference between playing wide and playing centrally. So something that I'm always curious about is 
really Europeans and specifically English people, I always feel have a, a really interesting perspective on how the game of soccer should be played. You know, Americans, we play really direct. So, uh, you know, in the, yeah. M- in the MLS, a lot of the football is really direct, especially when the teams have American managers. And at that, I yeah. actually think that style does sort of translate from English football, but there's a lot less crossing in the American game. Even if you, even if you watch the uh, U.S. men's national team, they play pretty direct, but they do it through the middle. Whereas English football is a lot of wide play, a lot of crossing. You know, the the tallest guy is the striker on a lot of you know the the championship league league one league two teams. So, kind of, what is your approach to the game of soccer? You know, what how would your perfect, most talented team play the game? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got quite a balanced approach to it. To be honest, you know, I've I've got the game kind of pinned down to nine sort of areas that we we try to work on and focus on and, and um, you know, those areas kind of touch on all the facets of the game. So I certainly try to um, have a complete sort of approach to it uh, as opposed to honing in on one area too much. But of course, as a coach, it's, it's easier to implement things defensively than it is um, attacking because obviously Attacking requires a bit more spontaneity and a bit more creativity, if you like, not to not to devalue the defending at all. Um, it's a different set of skills, but you know. So I do tend to focus first and foremost on on the defensive and where we defend, how we defend, you know, how we'll pressure the ball, when we'll pressure the ball, who will pressure on the ball. Uh, th- those are kind of the the ways that we set the teams up. Um, you know, but we I certainly like to play through the middle only because I think that helps create space out wide. And obviously if you can keep playing through the middle, that's great. But if you you know, if you make four, five, six passes in the in the center of the field, then then those wide players, those wide defenders tend to tend to squeeze inside a little bit, which which then leaves the, the outside space open. Um but yeah, I do I do understand completely what you're saying about the the difference in the culture, if you like. Now, you know, it's fast and physical and furious when you think about it in England, but you've you got to realize that most of the time they're playing in like, uh, they're playing in 36, 37 degrees weather. So they're, right. they're running over there just to keep warm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is really true. Also, you touched on something that I really wanted to talk about, which I think that coaching soccer is a lot different than coaching the major American sports, uh, football and basketball. Because when we when we think about coaching football and basketball, we think a lot about um, how teams score. And so for football, you know, you're diagramming plays out and in basketball, you're diagramming sets and you, you set up the offensive responsibility, but it, it's just so hard to actually score in soccer. Like it, it is just a, an actual accomplishment every time that a goal gets scored. I, I feel like coaching offensive soccer, I, I, I honestly feel like it has to be one of the most difficult jobs in sports because it, it generally is such a spot, like a spontaneous thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it is difficult, and you know there's a lot more flow to the game of of soccer than there is in, to any American sport, really. You know, um, or or to any of the traditional American sports, I should say. And and I think that that it it, it is a problem over here. Um, 
which I think hinders the development a little bit. Um, you know, because if you control things too much, you kill the you kill the organic sort of development, if you like, and the organic sort of coming together of the team and the players understanding each other. Um, you know, and even in the college game where there's there's like this rule where you can substitute players on and off, um, it just breaks the game up and it puts more emphasis on on fast and furious than it does on on actually tactical understanding um, and and sort of the the creativity and the togetherness that we're talking about. So I do think I do think that's a hindrance. Um, for for the US in in that respect, and um, I mean the the ebbs and flows of the game and understanding them is is a big part to being a coach, you know. But um, the the NPSL the the summer teams they obviously play in a in the FIFA structure, which means that you know they're only allocated so many substitutes. The college game's not recognised by FIFA, and Therefore, they can, you know, set their own rules and as as great a competition and, and um, excitement that it generates. I think purely for the development alone, um, somebody should look at lining that up the best they can with FIFA rules. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that makes sense. So, what do you view your role with the Erie Commodores is? How would you really define your job as a coach? Yeah, well, I think you know. Obviously, you're the you're the first. You're the first and foremost. You set the direction, and and then you've got to steer the ship. Um, you know, so it, it's it takes time for the team to gel, and the season's obviously very short uh, because it's predominantly college players playing over the summer. And as good as the level is, um, you know, it's it's a short season with maybe sixteen, seventeen games. Um, so there's not there's not really too too much time for them to to maximise who they are as a team, uh, you know. So again, it's it's about organising, and if I can if I can help each one of those players, which you you hope that you can, um, given the amount of time you're focused on the game, if I can help each of those players tune their game and become a little bit more defined about who they are as a player. And their strengths and, and limitations, then you know I would see that as my my job done. Obviously, we've got team goals on top of that. You know, we won the league last year, and uh, we'd like to to do that again. We've got the the U.S. Open Cup this evening, and if we win that game, we get to host the Pittsburgh Riverhand the following week. Which you know, I mean, th- those are bonuses um, just because the. The Riverhands, they've been training since the beginning of February and, and we've been together for a few days now. So it's, you know, it, it's not it's not realistic in terms of winning games like that, but it's just an excellent opportunity for the guys to, to go toe-to-toe with, with teams that are at the next sort of one step up, if you like. Do you do you think that promotion and relegation will ever come to the American game? Do you think that uh, it's even possible with the structures that they have in place? I certainly hope so because it, it changes the whole dynamic, Dave, of everything. Um, I don't know. I, I know how America's set up, and you know the, the the difference, the major difference between the European or the rest of the world, I should say, apart from a, a few countries, is that. 
that those clubs are all privately owned. You know, they've all been born out of the community and grown organically, if you like. And, and America's trying to emulate that in many ways. Um, but their structure is different because it's, the you know, the, the clubs are owned by the MLS. It's a franchise that's sold to the, the business people. And, um, you know, there's a certain, there's an element of, of uh, control which, you know, maybe takes away from um, certain aspects of the of the football can, culture in, in other countries. Uh, but if they were to add the, the promotion and relegation, you would see the whole sort of dynamics of the league. You know, all of a sudden, play, teams that are three quarters of the way through the season and and are, have got no chance of making the playoffs, but it, it matters that they keep going to get themselves out of their relegation. Um, you know, obviously, then they're picking up points against the top team. Um, you know, it just it just makes for a for a different atmosphere. But obviously, you know, the U.S. has a complete different sort of geographical layout. It makes makes it really difficult to. Um, I guess compared it to those European countries, which are often very small. You know, I think England's about the size of Pennsylvania, and has 96 professional teams. Um, you know, so you just can't emulate that in in any way. So I'm not saying that I, I know that it would be better for the country, but I do know it would change the, the the dynamics, and I certainly hope that FIFA steps in at some point. I have heard some. People seeing that, that FIFA is stepping into countries like the US and Australia and saying, okay, how can we how can we do this promotion relegation? But obviously you've got you've got all sorts of issues. You know, you have in America you have teams like uh, Chattanooga that were playing in the MPSL level and pulling in twelve thousand twelve thousand fans. You know, and then you've got teams like the Pittsburgh Riverhounds who are um, in the USL maybe pulling in three thousand. Um, you know, so it, it would be really difficult because if you if you turn that the other way around, a team like Erie Commodores that maybe pulls in 400 fans, if we were to get promoted to another league, then then how do we how do we how do we make our facilities compliant with hosting hosting bigger teams? You know, so there'd be a lot to think about. I, th- I certainly think somebody should take it on. Certainly, with the amount of money that's invested in sports in the U.S. And, and the and the kind of place that it has in the culture, um, I think that somebody should be looking at that. I think the the biggest thing that promotion and relegation would change would actually be at your level and would be at the USL level because in England, third tier teams can be big multi million dollar businesses. You know, Sunderland is in the third tier right now and they have facilities, they have a youth team, they like, you know, that Sunderland is a multi million dollar business and so are a lot of those other third and fourth tier teams and they can afford to train players and, and what happens in the United States with young players is they train out on like a national level or with like a like a traveling team that's sort of like uh, its own business but doesn't play in a league. And I actually think Promotion relegation would make the like training for young American players way more standardized and would make the U.S. men's national team much better. I think it's a I think it's a fair argument. I do, and, and you know you're saying there about the, the 
the youth players there, they're playing in, in kind of private club scenarios, settings where, you know, they're having to pay a lot of money um, to do that. And and maybe by being, maybe by these smaller clubs getting a sniff of, of some of the dollars at a higher level would make them invest more in their youth, if you see what I mean, so that they can build these teams in the future. Um, you know, if the prize is that you can work your way up to an MLS status, then you're going to invest more in your youth programs. You know, at the moment, the youth programs seem to serve as a, as a moneymaker um, for families that are paying hundreds of dollars a month uh, just, just to put on the shirt and play. Um, if you were to see a promotion and relegation, you might you may have areas like Erie, for example, who has about you know probably about two hundred thousand people in the surrounding area. Um, maybe somebody would would invest in in building a team over years, which might mean that America would then attract the the better athletes into this scenario. At the moment, from from what I see, they they attract. Um, the athletes that can afford it, <laughs> um, if that makes sense, you know, it's very much a middle class sport here. So, so yeah, you may be right. You 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 add in that dynamic, it might change the whole sort of development. It might make players um, uh, much more realistic, and in, in, in terms of um, you know, much more. Uh, having an impact on the game, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see, but it would probably take 10 years for us to even see what happens once they put that in place. Well, that is, you you really did hit on the biggest problem with soccer in the United States, which is that it's really only available to be played by such a small number of people. You know, all the all the great American soccer players that you think about, you know, uh, Pulisic and Landon Donovan and Alexi Lawless, these guys who went over to go play in Europe, DeAndre Yedlin, the, these guys had really unique advantages from a really young age because they were, you know, they were put in financial circumstances where their parents could afford for them to be trained and to travel. And, you know, that, that doesn't exist with basketball or football. You know, it really, anyone can play those sports in the United States, just the way that it's structured with the world set up. And I, I, I don't know if I have a solution to that problem right now, but I do think that putting some of the burden on the training away from the parents paying for it to these league teams is, is one of the, possible solutions i think no i think you're i think you're right and you're saying that the promotion and relegation you're going to find local businessmen would jump on board here um because they would see the opportunity back in europe mainly the investors are are working class people that made that built businesses and made money and understand the football's role in in their people if that makes sense um, you know, so so they're the types of people that invest in in the teams there, which then means there's money to develop the youth players, which then means that they're scouting the local projects, if you like, for those tough, hard nosed, blue collar, working class guys that that will, you know, that have not many other options. You know, I mean, I I know a few friends of mine always joke that if if Wayne Rooney hadn't been a footballer, they'd been stealing car radios. So you know these these kids have got everything invested in this. Um, so if 
yeah, I mean, the best way to do to do that, develop the best athletes, is have businessmen that can see the opportunity in that, and then invest the money at the grassroots within the club, um, and then build a success through that. But you know, and then that way, it's easing easing the burden on on the parents and the families, um, and obviously the ones that can afford it. It's great. It's worth it. They know that. Their children are getting so much out of the quality coaching um, because that 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 is the benefit of the the private club setting. You know the the, the club here in Erie, uh, Mill Creek Soccer Academy, the the number of quality coaches that are in that club because of the investment of the parents is is exceptional. But every year, every team, we're turning away two, three, four great players. Um, because they can't afford it, we can't find a sponsor. Uh, we have one now on my my U17s team. He's a he's a 15 year old boy that we that I spotted and said, you know, you have to come and play for us. And and they came and played for a month, two months, and and the parents just couldn't do it. You know, they tried, and they just couldn't pay the the money. Um, and you know, so the 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 benefit is that the the type of coaching they get, the influence that the kids are getting in that environment and the professionalism of the club that it is set up. The the flip side is those kids that, that fall through the cracks that we're talking about here. And, you know, if there was just some sort of initiative where where local businessmen got involved and three or four players from each age group in a community to make, make a difference, you know. So something I, I did want to get into the weeds with a little bit was I wanted to talk about how you set up the tactics for the Commodores, like sort of yeah. what's uh for, well, just first of all, what formation do you guys run generally or, or how often do you switch formation? Yeah. So we'll, we'll probably start with a, a four, two, three, one, which is my kind of preferred default. And that's only because we, we literally have not enough time to, build the formation around the players, which, you you know, you have to do. I mean, you know, any coach that's telling you this is the way we play um, might be a little bit short-sighted. Um, you have to build your your, your your formation around your team, around your strengths. Um, there's, there's simply no other way to do it, you know. So, yeah, we're, we're focusing at the moment on a 4-2-3-1, and, and that could change very easily. And bearing in mind that formations are, um, you know, often overemphasized over the, the the ability and the personnel that you've got in there and and how they play. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I never ever, I don't think I've ever told the team that's what we play. I just put the players in and and you know when we put it on the board, that's kind of what it resembles. But I mean, and actually. Talking to the team and saying today we're going to play a four-two-three-one. It's it's not really um, how you do it, if that makes sense. And I mean, even at home, people have an over sort of obsession on on that. And, and certainly in America, where, like you said, you're coming from backgrounds of like basketball and football, where it, it is very much about how you set everything up. Um, so we'll we'll be much more likely to find which players we can't afford to have in there. You know, and if that means we play with two guys on the right and no guy on the left, we'll do it. If it means, you know, it's the other way around, we'll, we'll do it. Um, you know, the the reality is once you get the right people on the pitch and you get them 
uh, working together. That's what that's what breeds the success. Not not whether it's a four four two or a or a four five one or three five two. So. so what is it like to set up a team tactically, or is it is it about you know sort of so you tell the defensive midfielders, okay, you know this is your role. I need you to mark this guy. I need you to not go past here. You know, is the is the striker given you know a lot of freedom, or the you know the attacking midfielder given a lot of freedom? Sort of, what is it like in terms of like individual instructions for all the players to to really set up a team's tactics for a given game or you know for a season? Yeah, I mean that that's exactly it. You're just putting certain limitations on them. You know, we we tend to follow a rule of thumb that we keep five behind the ball and five in front of the ball. Um, obviously, that doesn't ring true every time. Um, you know, and then it's about balance. If if we're attacking there, then we've got to keep the balance there and vice versa. Um, you know, we'd never limit anybody from, from not going beyond the line, if you like. But if they do, someone else has got to understand that they've stepped up and that they've got to maybe create some space by dropping off um so again it's it's really this sort of interchange of um of understanding between each other you know i mean they ha- uh, the success is really determined by how well they link up with the players around them um but yeah i mean the forwards we we tend to try and keep one player uh between the goalposts at all times and Obviously, ninety percent of the time, that's that's a forward. Um, and those times when he drifts out of position, a, a midfielder will fill that role. And uh, yeah, I mean, then then just determining your your style of play, whether you you play close and compact the middle, whether you're stretched out. Um, I mean, these are the the things to think about. And again, we're like trying to develop a a complete team. It kind of, it's just the same sense when you're developing when you're working with the players, you're trying to develop them to be complete players and, and not be rigid and limited um, by the, the, the tactical implementations, if that makes sense. Obviously, half of it is, or, or, or one side of it is tactics. It has to be. And then one side of it is how the players play in that, in those, that tactical setup, if you like. So sort of along with that tactics discussion, something I've I've literally always wondered this about soccer, it's how difficult it might be for a guy to change position because really a lot of the times, you know, you, you'll see center back score goals, you'll see strikers back in the box defending. There you you know really as most positions you're required to do a little bit of everything, passing, defending, shooting, all of it. And uh, the example that's always come to my mind was Danny Welbeck, because he played for Arsenal, and he was always, you know, a striker. Maybe sometimes he would play out on the left. But for as long as I can remember, Arsenal has always needed a a sort of good, active, central defensive midfielder, and Welbeck was always a good defender for a striker. So, So as a coach... Would it even be possible to change him positions? Would that just, you know, be a, a waste of his talents in front of the goal? Like, is it is it possible for the guys like that to switch roles? Yeah, I mean, you, you do tend to see it a lot, you know. I think um, uh, Ryan Giggs, they, they moved him into more central role. Um, I think David Beckham played a little bit more in the center, although, I, I mean, he was an out-and-out you know, cross out of the ball. So it certainly wasn't um, 
uh, wasn't maybe didn't suit him perhaps as well. But yeah, as players get older, they tend to to move them back and into where they can maybe have more of an influence on the on the um, the build up of the play. Lothar Matthias for Germany and Bayern Munich, he was a good example. He moved back a lot. I'm not sure that uh, Danny Welbeck would be uh, the type to play in the centre. Uh, you know, I think his attributes are definitely his mobility, his long stride. Uh, but yeah, as, as a as a um, a sort of rule of thumb, players do tend to change positions a little bit from as they get older, from a more mobile um, role to to some that's maybe a bit more static, a bit more structured. Yeah, you so, you do definitely yeah. see that. Like like Wayne Rooney yeah. at the end of his time in England, he was like there was a couple times Rooney for Everton played like basically defensive midfielder. He was behind Gilfie yeah. Sigurdsson and paired with uh like Tom That's Davies right. or Adrisa Ganagay. Yeah. yeah, and that and that tends to be, you know, that that sort of holding midfielder role tends to be an easier one for somebody that's that's 32 34 um, than a than a young 21, 22 year old. Obviously, the, there are exceptions. That's you know you've got um, the boy Winks at Tottenham, who's a young guy with an incredibly high pass success ratio, um, playing in a in a withdrawn midfield position. But yeah, I mean that's a great example. Wayne Rooney dropping in there because he can have an influence on the game. You know he understands the movement and where players will be. So I think that's a much better sort of. Uh, example of that and what Danny Danny Welbeck might be. Yeah. So the then, yeah. oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that you also had the Valencia at Man United. You remember they dropped him back to fullback, where he played for probably six years, and before that he was an out and out winger. I mean that's probably a fairly a fairly uh, interchangeable position, but you know once he dropped him back to fullback, I don't think he played higher up the field anymore after that. No, no, he he did pretty like that is that is a pretty common one. You'll see where when wingers get a little bit older, they'll move back. You know, Jordi Alba was a winger when he was young. Actually, yep. for Man United mm-hmm. as well, Ash, Ashley Young has played a bunch of different positions. He's played central midfield. Yeah. He's played left back, right back. Uh, Fabian yeah. Dell for Manchester City, uh, and that that's yeah. a pretty interesting thing in general. You know, his like. We we do get you're right. Americans do get hung up on these positions, but sometimes in the course of a team, you can play you know, a different position on offense and on defense. You know the Pep's fullbacks yeah. play central midfield on offense, and then they come back and they play wide defender. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty standard um, evolve evolution, if you like. From there to there, yeah. But that's an interesting one about Ashley Young. Just going back to the point we were making earlier, um, Ashley Young, when he was um, uh, when he was developing, the he was not going to be offered a professional contract. Um, you know, they were they were releasing him. You know, obviously each team has eighteen to twenty kids playing at home, and they know from quite early. Uh, which ones they think are going to make it and which ones don't. You know, obviously they need, they need a full team to to do that. But when he was um, when he was at uh, Watford, I believe it was, they weren't going to keep him on. And um, there, there was a couple of people that that really vouched for him, and they they found they actually found someone to 
sponsored him at fifty pounds a week for his first contract. And you know now look at him. I think he's he certainly wore the armband at Manchester United. Um, I think he may have even worn worn it at England at a point. Um, but you know that that's a perfect example of somebody that just never would have had the chance had had somebody not been investing money uh, to give kids a chance to play. I mean, and there are there are a lot of stories like that. Jamie Vardy was playing in, you know, the the non professional leagues before he he latched yeah. on with Leicester. Um, the the Brighton striker Glenn Murray, who uh, he like he was maybe even going to get invited to the World Cup with England this last time. He was he played for the he was in the United States actually. He played for the the Wilmington Hammerheads or something like that, and then ended up yeah. ended up back playing for Brighton. So there is there are definitely more opportunities like that in the English game. But whereas you know that that guy would end up selling insurance if he stayed in the United States. Yes, yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, it's and it's a hard thing to change. It really is, but um, you know, hopefully over time they can do it because it's it's incredible here. And and I think you'll see. You know, and we all. I always said that uh, that you would see the national team here keep developing. Uh, when I first came here, I, I used to go back and say, like, you're going to see this country blossom as a football nation. It's really taken off, and then it it seems to take off, and then not not go anywhere from there but but now i think it's it's fair to see that it's really taken off that it's now you know you're seeing all these towns smaller towns with with teams in this this sort of npsl league and the 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 formerly the pdl league and you know you're seeing fans that obviously with the globalization of everything you're you're able to have uh, pretty decent conversations about football and, and like you're seeing the understanding of it, um, which you weren't seeing before. And I think that that's a great sign that it that it is actually really taking a hold here. Um, you know, and, but it, it has to make its 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 impact on the top uh, three or four uh, traditionally American sports to to try and get some of those better athletes. And if it can do that, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a different, uh, a different ball game for them altogether as a national team. So hopefully that's what we'll see anyway. Well, American interest in the 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 top leagues in Europe has like never been higher. Like you can, the Champions League is like people know about the results of Champions League games now. Where like you know, ten years ago when I was in high school, I I don't know if people could have even like I don't even know if people in that I would have like went to high school with. I don't even know if they would have known who Lionel Messi is. And now people are, you know, if I wanted to go watch a Fiorentina game on a Thursday afternoon, I'd be able to find it on TV somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think, you know, when I first came here, you're right. that The only games that were televised were the Champions League ones on, on ESPN. And, and the, that was it. You know, now you can actually get more access on TV to the games than you can in Europe. Europe, it's it's locked up even more than it is here with with TV rights. And, you know, there, there are so many different companies selling the packages that it's, it's hard to get as much as you do here. So it is, it's 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 way ahead of where it was. 
So sort of as our as our last topic here, what do you think about the the sort of the concerning nature of how much money is really in the top five teams, uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, PSG, Bayern Munich, and, uh, you know, Manchester City. Like what, like, does the, does all of this money funneling to the top sort of concern you about the, the future game of, of football? I mean, if I'm thinking about it, just, you know, logically, yes, it, it it is. I mean, logically, it just feels like the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. But there's always exceptions to the rules. I mean, just look at the Liverpool game yesterday. Um, I mean, that's that's incredible feat by them, you know. And, and it's it's always eleven against eleven, and it's. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's. And obviously, that there's there's a lot more than just the ninety minutes of the game. It's the years of developing. Uh, those players, but that the the, the goal by uh, Trent Alexander Arnold, that where he set up Origi, the fourth goal for Liverpool against Barcelona yesterday, um, you saw seven, eight Barcelona players switch off. You know their top top professionals, probably the highest paid in the world, and they switch off to concede the fourth goal to lose four nil to give up a 3-0 lead in the home leg. And, you know, they're still human beings. So, yes, the money does play a, a huge factor. Of course it does. But you can always develop people. You can always develop players. You can. It's the same skills that are required. You know, it's it's they're human beings. And you can only... You only last so long at the top, and, and unless the right leadership are coming in, and you know, and then then what do you do when the team switches off like that? What does the manager do? Does he come in the changing room and, and tell him you just probably cost me my job? Does the club back him, and then does he make some big decisions and cut some big players to to keep everyone on their toes, or does he does he just try to keep the status quo so that he doesn't risk the fans turning against him? You know, there's so many more dynamics at the bigger teams that they don't have at the, the smaller teams. So, yeah, there's not always parity in terms of the money, but you're always, look at Leicester City a few years ago, you're, you're always going to get those fairy tales. It's why it's so wonderful. It's why we do it. And, you know, it's there, there, there does need to be rules as there are and, and as will keep happening. Um that, that try to protect the integrity of the game, if you like. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to, to really say that the, the top five are going to lock it all up and, and that's it. You know, I, I think there's been some perfect examples of how there'll always be groups of people, there'll always be businessmen that, that want to invest in smaller teams because they can't get in the bigger teams that can, that can, you know, throw the cat amongst the pigeons, so to speak. There we go. Dale, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. Do you have, uh, is there, is there a way for people to watch the Commodores games if they wanted to? Oh, there is. The tonight one is being streamed. Um, I know that if you go to Erie Commodores on Facebook or Twitter, you'll, you'll find a, a stream for that. We're playing the Dayton Dutch Lions. Yeah. Um, so the games are all streamed one way or another. Um, obviously the people in Erie, Oh, they can come on down to Gannon University and watch the game at seven o'clock. Um, 
the, the, the streams are all there. ESPN is streaming the game tonight. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the time. Excellent. Thank you, Dave.